Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. On January 31st, the Reformation Roundtable group, this is the group that's seeking to plant a Reformed church in Lewis County. About 40 of us all caravaned up to Trinity Church, which is actually meeting right now in Bothell. And in Bothell, we all worshiped together with uh, Dave Hatcher as the pastor, and we experienced together what covenant renewal worship looks like in the CREC. Now, because Bothell is located about two hours away from Centralia, many of us didn't get back till later that evening. And so we did not have a fellowship night like we've been doing the past few weeks. And so since I don't have a fellowship night recording to share with you, I instead downloaded the recorded service that took place at Trinity Church on January 31st. So I hope you enjoy listening in on this service. It was a glorious thing to be a part of. Trinity Church is a blessing to visit, that's for sure. If you're in the Seattle area, I highly recommend you go to trinitykirk.org and get the information there for where they are meeting. If you would like to join us in our vision to plant a Reformed church in Lewis County, head on over to lewiscounty.church. There is a contact form. There's actually even now a schedule of events. So if you want to know what's coming up the next time we're meeting, any other different activities that may be ta- taking place, you can head over to lewiscounty.church and get all of your information there. Also, if you'd like to join us, fill out that contact form. It'll come directly to me, and I will get in touch with you as soon as possible. So with that, I hope you enjoy listening in on this Lord's Day Covenant Renewal Worship Service. Trinity Church, come on in, get a seat. You'll notice we have lots more uh, rows up towards the front here. We've been, we're growing this morning. <laughs> Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Hatcher, I'm the pastor here, and we have elders in the back that are handing out elements for communion. So if you're coming in with us and your guests, make sure that you've got enough elements uh, of wine in the cups and the bread, because we will not be handing it out. We'll, we'll, we'll be going through the uh, the sacrament, but you'll have those bags with you at that time. Also, you need to make sure you have uh, both books, the Cantus and the Songs for the Saints book, books, and, and again, go back and grab whatever extras you might need if you don't have those. And I'm making uh, the, those kinds of announcements, especially because we do have several uh, visitors. Um, we have several families co- visiting with us from Lewis County, Trinity Church, down in Lewis County. Uh, they are gathering together and have been studying um, and planning the idea of a church plant. And we are going to host them uh, in planting another CREC church down in the Centralia Chehalis area. So, yeah, so it's wonderful, it's good news. So um, I'm not gonna ask you all to introduce yourselves, but if uh, just the families, if you're here visiting, just stand up so we can see who you are and then we'll come and bug you after the service and say hi. So they're all, they're back there. 
they all got here at about 9.15, just in case you want to know how this works, this church thing. Okay, so <laughs> one announcement, we will be starting a, a men's meeting um, on March 7th. We're going to go three Sunday evenings in a row, and we're going to go through the book Plot Activity by Doug Wilson's great book um, to, to go through with regard to um, considering wealth, technology, and stewarding all the resources God has given you, plus... How do you just plod along and continue to make progress? We have books for all the men to pick up if you're not from Lewis County. I'm not sure if I have enough for Lewis County guys. You have to go get your own. Um, but in, and so on your way out, make sure you pick them up and plod your way through it now between now and March 7th. And then join us for three uh, Sunday evenings as we go through this book together. I think that's all the announcements I have. Are there any others that anybody has this morning? Okay, then in, uh, on your bulletin, there'll be words to the meditation. Would you turn there, please? And let's uh, prepare our hearts to come and worship our God. Amen. Let us stand and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also with you. Psalm 19. The glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Let's pray together. Father, day after day, your creation sings your glory and the knowledge of their creator. The sun declares the glory of light. The darkness reveals another side of your glory. The clouds declare another glory as they pour forth the water that satisfies our thirst and the thirst of the land. Mountains and deserts, valleys and oceans all declare the glory of God to you and to us. But then you give us your word, the declaration of your sovereign love and plan, and the reign of Jesus Christ over it all and over us all. Overwhelm us as you summon us into your presence as your people. Bless beyond all we can think or imagine, together with all of creation, and be glorified in our awe, in our holy fear, in our delight, in our petitions, and in our thankfulness and faith. And so, gracious Father, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. Please turn to page 330. Just for a moment on with all 
Amen. Please be seated. This is the Lord's day, and it's a good day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why? What is God doing every Lord's day with us, with you, with yours? He is packing us full. He is arranging us as his living temple, setting us firmly again up against the chief cornerstone, making sure we are where we should be. He is feeding us with spiritual food through the word and the table. He is knitting us together in a holy unity that we could never create, but are invited to enjoy. What does he require of us? Of you. Everything. All you have, all that you are, all that you own, all that you hope for, all that you dream of, all that you have lost and wish you had back, all of it, he requires of you to be a living sacrifice placed upon the altar of his providence, his plans, his promises. He requires everything, all of you. Is it worth it? Will it be worth it? Well, first, everything he asks of you, you have only because he has given it to you. Your life, your wealth, your status, your successes, along with your trials and dreams and ambitions. He wants them all, not because he needs them, but because he is going to take them and rearrange them and make something far more glorious with them than you ever could. And second, think of what you gave him to receive Christ. You gave him your sin, your rebellion, your unbelief, your selfishness, and he gave you his son, his righteousness his forgiveness, his adoption. He has knighted you and set you in the heavenlies with his son to rule over heaven and earth as a member of his body. He is not, has he not proven to you his faithfulness? Has he not proven to you his eternal care? But we are often, often, often tempted to doubt, are we not? And so he says, come, it's the Lord's day, come. Come again and again to hear from me. Come again and let me deal with you all the way down. Come again and let me bring you that eternal and everlasting life that I have promised you in Jesus Christ. Come and worship the Lord. Psalm 70 that we're about to sing ends with these two verses. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. This reminds us of our need to come before him. Not only to ask for all of our needs, but to confess before him our sins. Our sins. And so take a moment now and confess your sins silently before him, and then I will lead us in a corporate confession. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy. We have not turned to you as our help and deliverer, and instead we have strayed from your ways. We have reinterpreted evil as good and good as evil. We have twisted your word and taught ourselves to be our own gods. We have ruined others in our actions, our words, our intentions, our jealousies and envies, our hatred and outbursts. We have lusted after things and others that are not ours nor should be, 
We have neglected you and our neighbor in our selfishness. We've not trusted you in the hard times. We've not humbled ourselves before you. For these and every sin you have brought to mind, we now sincerely confess as sin. We make no excuse and claim the cleansing blood of Jesus to remove our unrighteousness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In your blue songs for the saints, turn to page 29. We'll sing Psalm 70. Page 29. Psalm 32 says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Mercy surrounds you. That is why as Christians it becomes you to confess your sins. His mercy grants you repentance. His mercy grants you faith. His mercy convicts you and turns you back to him. And his mercy does all of that so that in confessing your sins, you can hear these words with such confidence. Christian, your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Having confessed our sins, let us now stand and together confess our common faith. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Turn in your cantus to page 88 now.
Amen. Please be seated. If the men who are leading us in corporate prayer would please come forward. Reading Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Is your soul thirsty this morning? Are you in a wilderness like David was when he wrote Psalm 63? Seek God. Cry out to him. Meditate on him. Because God does restore our souls. May the Lord help us to cling to him. May we constantly experience his arms upholding us. We come before God in prayer, lifting our prayers and petitions because he is the only one who upholds all things. May the thirst of our souls be satisfied as we see him working, as we see him answering our prayers. He is our confidence and our hope. Let's go to him in prayer now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for establishing your bride, the church, here on earth. Thank you for the opportunity we have at Trinity Church to worship you. Please help us to approach our worship here with the appropriate sobriety, joy, and thankfulness. Please bless Pastor Hatcher as he serves as the presiding minister of Anselm Presbytery. Give him the energy and time to serve the presbytery effectively and be a blessing to the pastors within it. We also pray for Evangelical Reformed Church in Gdansk, Poland, and Pastor Pavel Bartosik. Give Pastor Bartosik wisdom and strength as he leads his people. Please preserve their ability and freedom to meet and worship you openly. Please oversee the discipleship of the members there, and please bring more people to yourself through that church. Lord, thank you for the church plants in Centralia. Please solidify a core group of families for the work of beginning a new church in that community. Give them courage and energy and wisdom and love. Please bless their endeavors and please continue to grow your kingdom here on earth and especially here in Western Washington. Thank you for the blessing of tithes and offerings and for the privilege of bringing our first fruits before you. Help us to remember that all we have is from you and give us glad and thankful hearts as we return the tithe to you. We pray that as we tithe, you would make us a more thankful people. Lord, please give wisdom as we continue to pursue property in Woodenville for our church. If the current property is right for us, please provide all the funds necessary to close. We also pray that you would open the door for a meeting with King County as soon as possible. Lord, thank you for all the musicians who accompany us in worship. Thank you for the gift of music, and thank you for the many commands you've given us to be a people of song and a people of the Psalms. May our singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs bring glory to God. Give us greater love for your psalms and a greater love for singing praises to you and bringing our grievances to you with the psalmists. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Heavenly Father, we pray for the school system in our country. Your word teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We pray that those who reject you and suppress the truth would be replaced with those who honor you and acknowledge the, the truth that Jesus is Lord. We pray that parents in this country would ultimately retake responsibility for educating their children, and that would be a country characterized by raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We pray for the Robertstad family as they mourn the passing of Sam's brother, Pete. Father, as they mourn, please comfort them, Sam especially. Restore joy to them and give them hope as they ultimately look to the final resurrection where they will be re reunited with Pete. We pray for Chris Wolschlag as he deals with severe back pain. Give them wisdom as they research ways to treat his back. And please heal Chris of this affliction. We pray for Dick and Gail Blakely as they deal with the challenges of Dick's memory loss. May the presence of Christ overshadow the challenges and trials associated with this memory loss. Uh, please give Dick clarity of mind in this trial. We pray for Lou as he also struggles with severe memory loss, among other health issues. We pray for the strength, wisdom, and faithfulness for Lou and for his family as they care for him. And God, we pray for Joy Lee's family as she had surgery this past week for early stage breast cancer. God, may they have caught it in its earliest stage, and may, they, may the surgery coupled with medication be enough to control it. Give the doctors wisdom as they seek the best methods for treatment. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Father, we recognize our obligation to respect and honor those in authority over us in the civil realm. With this in mind, we pray for our governmental authorities that they would walk in prudence and wisdom. We pray that the gospel of truth would go forth and seep into decisions, policies, and discourse of our civil government. We pray specifically for President Biden and his cabinet that they would make informed decisions that preserve the moral health, physical safety, and long-term sustainability of the freedoms we have enjoyed in our nation. We trust in your plan with an understanding that all things fall under the umbrella of your sovereign control. We thank you for those in local, state, and federal positions who love you and seek to honor you and their faithful service in the civil realm. Would you raise up people steeped in the truth of your word? to serve us locally in such a way that our freedom to worship would be respected. We pray for those serving in the military as well as the police, firefighters, and first responders in our country. We ask that you preserve their mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical safety, and that they would be encouraged in the callings you have given them. Finally, we ask that we in our church community and the various callings you've given each person, regardless of age, to be agents of change and ministers of mercy and justice. As a community, grant us opportunities to live out our faith in tangible ways that brings light to the darkness, even in small and seemingly insignificant ways. We ask this knowing that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you, just as you care for the lilies and the birds of the air, you care and provide for your people in your church. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we bring all of our praises and petitions, all of our thanksgiving and concerns before you, and lay them at your feet. We thank you for your promise that you hear our prayers. Restore our souls as we seek after you. Lift us up and hide us in the shadow of your wings. We sing to you now the words our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in
Please stand with your cantus and turn page 28 as we sing Psalm 20. Please remain standing. If you have Bibles, would you turn with me to Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. We'll return there this morning to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. These are the words of God. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision And make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. These are the words of God. Let's ask God's blessing upon them. Heavenly Father, here your word lies before us, and we stand before you. There is always far more than we realize in every line of Scripture. Unpack it for us and in us. Do so by your Holy Spirit that we might be conformed to it and to your Son. May he be glorified in the preaching of his word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Remember I told you as we opened the book of Habakkuk that Habakkuk is the whole book, the whole three chapters are built in a chiastic or chiastic um, outline or structure. And a chiasm um, is, uh, is like a, if you took a piece of paper and you folded it in half and then opened it up and then, you, and then you wrote so in such a way that the very center of what you were saying is where your thesis is. That's where your main point is. So your first point ends up corresponding with the last point the next point corresponds with the second to last, and it all, it all moves towards this center point. Well, we're there 
in the book of Habakkuk, not by the number of verses, but by the structure. We're in the center of, the, of Habakkuk's oracle or burden. The just shall live by faith. So the just shall live by faith is this central idea in all of Habakkuk's oracle, and we're going to be talking about that. Interestingly, Paul will take that phrase, and he will make it his thesis statement for Paul's magnum opus on the gospel. So if you've grown up learning how to write an, uh, an essay or a thesis or that kind of thing, you know that uh, early on you are to state your thesis, and then you go on to defend or unpack that thesis. So we, we don't usually give a talk or, or write a paper in a chiastic fashion. We do it in much more like Paul did um, in a fashion where the thesis is stated and then unpacked. Well, if you read through Romans with Romans 1.17 in mind, what you'll find is, is Paul is unpacking this very statement, the same statement that is the central statement in the book of Habakkuk. It was the glorious theme of the Reformation, this, this phrase, the just shall live by faith. And it is at the heart of the message we are to preach and to live by. What we should see is that both Habakkuk and Paul mean far more than what we often reduce this statement to. So while it is true that this statement is declaring and proving, or uh, in, as it's unpacked, shows us that faith is the only instrument for our salvation. There are no works involved in our salvation. The only thing that we do in order to attain salvation is believe. And even that faith is a gift, as we'll see. This is a faith that knows, um, in addition to that, and, it, and it, it's playing out right here in the book of Habakkuk, and it plays out as, as Paul will deal with all the difficulties surrounding believing God, believing his, the, the, the gift of his electing knowledge, foreknowledge of all things, in the midst of a world that isn't perfect, that's far from perfect. Well, what do we do in the midst of that? One of the things we do is believe in fact, that's the central thing we do. We believe we have faith in a God who has, has oversight over everything, has predetermined all things to, that are coming to pass, that has, has control of your life, of the circumstances of your life, of this world, of this nation, of this generation. So this is a faith that knows how to look at afflictions and judgments and torments and trials and walk with God through them with confidence in his sovereign goodness and plan. Would you like to be able to walk with God, with confidence in God, in the midst of what you are going through right now? Would we as the people of God like to be able to walk with confidence in a triumphant God in the midst of what doesn't look like triumph going on all around us? Well, that's what this phrase is for. That's what the book of Habakkuk is for. That's what the testimony of the book of Romans is for. That's what, the, that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is not just about getting your ticket punched so when you die, you get to go to heaven. That's not all it's about. It is about faith in the living God who sent his son and sent his son to die for the forgiveness of sins, to be raised for our justification and to ascend to his throne where he now sits and rules in complete confidence himself over all of heaven and earth. That's why we're going through the book of Habakkuk right now, because of this central idea. Well, let's a quick review how we got here. Habakkuk tells God that the nation, he's speaking to Judah, the southern kingdom, is a mess. It's, it's in an absolute mess of wickedness, unbelief, and idolatry. And Habakkuk is crying out to God, God, what are you, you going to take care of your people here? What, we, we, need a, we need a reformation. We need a revival. We need you to come down and change things. And he cries out to God to do something about it. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And God responds. 
He says, don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm sending the Chaldeans. Verses 5 through 11. Shocked that God could use such a dirty tool as Babylon to accomplish anything good. Habakkuk now challenges God's integrity in verses 12 through 17. And then we come in, in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. He, he knows that what he's done. Habakkuk knows that I have just spoken to God challenging God's authority and integrity. And that's why it sounds like it does in verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. It appears that he's now bracing himself for a straightforward rebuke from the Lord. But the rebuke does not come. Instead, what comes is the awesome and terrible and gracious and glorious wisdom of God, of his sovereignty over everything, and of his call to us to believe him in the midst of that everything. Paul, as he's dealing with unpacking this same idea that the just shall live by faith, is going to deal with how come, how come the Jews who you said are the elect ones, have fallen away and are being cut off? How come there is now an impending judgment on Jerusalem, which will fall, which will fall upon them, after Paul has written this, would fall upon them in 70 AD? How is it that the unbelieving Jews are going to be destroyed? What are you doing, God, as he's, he's dealing with that, really, in chapters 9, 10, 11? That's what's going on. And he will end chapter 11, Paul will, with, with these words, after he, after he explores the answer of God's, um, of God's goodness and sovereignty in the midst of evil. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There is a way to understand God's awesome sovereignty over everything in the midst of whatever pain, whatever travail, whatever difficulty you or your people or your nation or your generation is going through and be able to sit with confidence, rejoicing with God in his unsearchable riches, riches that you can never end exploring and you will never completely comprehend. But you will be able to rest in them because God gave you something. What did he give you? Faith. He gave you the ability to trust in the faithfulness of God, to trust in the faithfulness of God, and thankfully, not in your own faithfulness. So we get to verses 2 through 4 then. Let's, uh, let's go through these verse by verse. The Lord does answer, telling Habakkuk to write the vision. He says, I want you to write the vision, and he says, I want you to make it plain on tablets. An interesting phrase. It certainly evokes immediately the idea of the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And the idea, I think, that, he, that is, is being brought to mind here is what I'm about to say, what the Lord is about to say, I want it written down on tablets like the ten words were written for Moses. These, these, are, these are the sure words of God upon, upon which everything else is built. In the old covenant, and in, 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 as, the, as the covenant before Moses was, was given to him and then to the people, it was the Ten Commandments that was a foundational document by which we then built, by then the people of God built their, their faith, their activities, their life around. Now, a tablet is to be written on again, and a particular set of words, a vision that God has for Habakkuk, for all of his people, are to be written down as well. And it says also that he is to make it plain. Make it plain so that, quote, he may run who reads it. 
so he may run who reads it. This uh, phrase um, puzzles commentators in terms of exactly what does he mean. Does he mean that it, that it needs to be written so plain, like a big billboard, so that as people run by, they can see it and they always remember? Or does it have something to do about the, the one who is running has an ability to proclaim? Or is it that the words themselves, the message, allows the one who is running to continue to run? Well, I think it's that, I think it's that latter one. It, it, I think that what he's trying to say <coughs> is that I, I want you to write this vision, proclaim this vision in such a way as, as a message to empower anyone to run, to live, to succeed, and to fill, just as the writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews chapter 12. Listen, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is on the beginning, that's in the beginning of Hebrews 12, and I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to go there in a minute. What is, what, is he, what is the writer of Hebrew concluding, or what is he talking, what, what is he responding to, answering to? in the beginning of chapter 12. What came right before it? What came right before it? Well, so this is what, this is what um, the Lord says to Habakkuk to do. The reason to do so, he says, to write the vision and run with it, is that God intends to accomplish this vision. Not just the vision of that the just shall run, uh, live by faith, but that the Chaldeans, he's going to go on and, and say, I'll give it away, spoil alert. Chapter 3, he's going to say, well, the Chaldeans are coming down also. I have complete control over them. And so he's, he's going to say that the proud are going to come down, but the just shall survive, the just shall live by faith. So, and, and then, he's, then he says, though it tarries, it will not tarry. Look at verse 3 again. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Though it tarries, it will not tarry. What do you mean, God? Well, though it tarries from your vantage point... Though it seems to you that God is not answering prayer today. I, I prayed the same thing yesterday and the day before and the day... And where's the answer, right? You ever feel that way? Or is it just me? Though it tarries, God says, it will not tarry. He's not having trouble bringing the answer. He's bringing the answer, the solution at just the right and appointed time that he has for that vision or for that answer to come at just the right time, accomplishing just what he wants to accomplish. He's not tearing at all in bringing this vision to fruition. We already saw how Jesus and Paul spoke similarly of the coming and final downfall of Jerusalem and the temple. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Speaking of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the, Jew, the unbelieving, unbelieving Israel that would be the, the, main, um, the main oppressors and persecutors of the new church. They would be crying out for vindication. They'd be crying out for God to save them. And God said, Jesus said, this, this, in this generation, before this generation ends, all these things that I've said will come to pass. Paul, when he's preaching the gospel, we also saw in Acts chapter 13, as he's preaching the gospel, and he has unbelieving Jews, Jews that are, that, that are envious and turning against him, and he quotes from Habakkuk, 
saying, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So the generation of persecuted Christians had to wait for the vindication to come, just as the vindication for, for the Jews in Habakkuk's day would have to wait for God to bring his vindication. They would end up waiting 70 years after they are taken into exile. The writer to the Hebrews now quotes the uh, Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of this passage in Habakkuk in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Because the writer to Hebrews is, is writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, who have come to faith, but are being persecuted, attacked by, unbelieving, by, the, by the unbelieving Jews, mostly. And they are crying out to God to be delivered, and they are tempted to leave their faith. It's too hard. There's too much persecution, and there's a temple right there in Jerusalem if we just go back with our people to that and to the old, and to the old sacrificial system. And the writer to the Hebrews is telling the Hebrews in the midst of this coming and, and, and ongoing conflict, you must not give up your faith because remember what Habakkuk said. Okay, so that's what's going on. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at 10, 11, and 12 real quick and see how this all plays out. <clears throat> so, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, he says, For for you have need to endurance. You have need of endurance. You've got to be able to hang in there. Okay? It seems like God's tearing, but he's not going to tarry. That's what he's arguing. He says, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And now he quotes Habakkuk. The, the translation is very different because of some textual variations and, and, how, and how the writer of Hebrews is using it. But this is coming straight from Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 from the Greek Septuagint. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. There it is. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. How do they not draw back? Well, they don't draw back because they live by faith. And then what happens in chapter 11? Those of you who know the book of Hebrews, you know that the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith. It is how all of these different people, saints beforehand, went through all kinds of persecutions and trials, all kinds of conflicts, and they persevered by faith in situations where it didn't look like it was possible God could do what he promised that he was going to do. By faith, Sarah believes God, and a child is brought forth. By faith, Moses leads his people, and they're brought out of the greatest empire of the world. Chapter 11 begins this way. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. And he goes on to describe how by faith, all these people continued to the walk 
in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the torments. Some, in their, in their day, saw a great deliverance take place. Others, he said, did not. Others fell by the side, but they didn't give up their faith, and, they, and the vindication for them is still coming. Because they're waiting, we're all waiting for that final, they were waiting for that final vindication that would take place with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so then he says in chapter 12, turning to those of us who are still alive in the day of the book of Hebrews. And he says, therefore also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, of what? Of faithfulness, of those who believe that God was going to get them through this, uh, that God had great purposes, and in the end it would all be revealed. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And their sin particularly was the sin to doubt and walk away from God. To doubt and walk away from the Lord Jesus. He is not enough for me. I need to go and find something else. Because Because I believed in Jesus and look at my life. I believed in Jesus and look what he's done. I believed in Jesus, and look at the answers that have not come. That is the sin that so easily ensnares us. And the only way to stand against that is faith. Is, is faith. The same faith that saved you is the same faith that, is going to get, that you are going to walk through whatever that torment, whatever that trial, whatever that age, whatever that situation is. The same faith that God gave you to believe on him for salvation. We'll see this. We'll see this as we, as we come through. Okay, so these verses then are being applied in the exact same way in a similar but historically distinct situation. Back in, uh, in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 then, he gives this declaration, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright him, but the just shall live by his faith. Um, in, in this chiastic structure... Habakkuk will begin now to back out from there and talk about the Chaldeans in chapter three, in chapter two, about their downfall, their coming downfall. So the, so the Chaldeans are that proud people, trusting in themselves and scoffing at all the other powers. Remember, remember the description of the Chaldeans in chapter one, verse 10 of Habakkuk. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. God in his providence granted the wicked Chaldeans the ability to take over um, uh, nation after nation, people after people, as they just marched across the land over a period of about 20 to 30 years, taking control and becoming the next great empire in their day. They weren't afraid of anything, and their belief was in themselves, their proud might, their proud ability to do what they wanted. God warns Habakkuk here in verse 4 to see the stark difference between those who are proud, they are not and never can be upright, he says, and those who are justified by faith. He will go on to ridicule the haughty in verses 6 through 20, but we'll rest here now on this particular verse. All of that, in so many ways, is introduction again just to this phrase. The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk places this simple phrase in the center of his oracle and burden. God is urging the prophet and the faithful with him to a patient and enduring faith in the face of terrible adversity and circumstances. Paul argues the same but applies it universally with the terrible circumstances of being lost in our own sin and condemnation. 
So I want to take you now to the book of Romans. We have to do a little bit of study to make sense of this phrase and why this phrase can make so much sense and have so much application for us, for you in your own personal life, and for us in our day. The book of Romans. What's that about? Paul's writing um, a great uh, systematic theology, in essence, a biblical theology, as he goes to chapters 1 through 11, particularly describing and unpacking this idea of his thesis statement. Verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1 of Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul is going to now argue the same idea about being in terrible circumstances and that the only way that you are going to survive those terrible circumstances is to live by faith. But in his mind, the terrible circumstances isn't your boss or how things are going in your family or the disease that you have. It isn't the, the possibility that is the, of dying that's right before you. That's not it. That's not what is on his mind. The terrible circumstances that he has for you is that you are absolutely condemned in your sin before a living and holy God. That's the terrible circumstances that all of us find ourselves in. And that's where he turns to deliver and apply this first. Because, you see, he takes from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul shows how all, both Jew and Gentile, all of us, are all condemned in our sin and that salvation for any, for all, is only through another one. He will go in chapter 1 and basically say all of the Gentiles are lost under their sin, are given over to their sin and into final judgment. And then he turns in chapter 2 and he basically says to the Jews, and don't get so haughty, you Jews, you think that you, have it all. you even have the law and you break it. You're in worse shape than the Gentiles in your condemnation. And then he goes to chapter 3 and he says, so all of you are lost. Everyone's lost in their sin, Jew and Gentile alike. And we can pick it up and you, you, you are very familiar with verse 23 of chapter 3. But let's go there. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned. That's the conclusion. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's talking about the just shall live by faith. <laughs> He's unpacking that. But he goes on. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So no matter how hard any of your life circumstances are, maybe this is the most central point, no matter how hard any of your life circumstances are, nothing is worse than your position before the living God, dead in your sins, if you are not in Jesus Christ. And so your faith must have an object. Our problem is we are being taught all the time to have faith in ourselves, to find it within yourself, your goodness. To find it within yourself, your power to lift yourself up out and make yourself a better person. As though you're going to be able to dust your sinful, dirty, 
uh, body. You, you, it's like a kid going out and playing in the mud pies, coming back head to toe. I've seen some of them before. Head to toe, covered in mud. And they say, you got to clean yourself up before you come in. And they go, okay. That's about how good you can clean yourself up in your sin, in your condemnation before the living God. That's about it. Outside of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in, in, uh, in, in terrible straits. We need to see that Jesus is the only way and that, and that he is delivering us from our greatest problem. Our greatest problem. And I want to I hammer that down because if he's, if he's going to deliver us from our greatest problem, then something else is going to follow. Okay? If you're not in Jesus Christ, then you are in, in great peril. And so your faith must have that object, and it must be in Jesus. That object must be in the faithful one, in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul will continue basically that argument, and as he gets to chapter 10, that's when he will say in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, that is, has faith. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So for Habakkuk, the question was, why should we be carried off by the wicked Babylonians? For the Jews in the first century who believed, the question is, why should we be judged by the pagan Roman Gentiles? And for both Jew and Gentile for all, what is our only instrument of salvation? It's faith in the living and ruling and reigning God, Jesus. Both in Habakkuk and in Romans, this faith is not simply a propositional assent. It is not dead catechism faith. It's faith that they have to take out with them on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday in the midst of the torment and persecution and trials. It is a living faith. In fact, as the Westminster Confession puts it, the, it is a faith that this faith that justifies is no dead faith. It is a living faith. The gospel, the gospel is objective. It's outside of you. It's outside of you. The gospel is true. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. Jesus Christ died for sinners. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. Jesus Christ died, and on the third day, he rose from the dead, and he ascended from heaven, and he sits at God's right hand right now, ruling over all of heaven and all of earth. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and he's not asking you to vote him in office. He is. It's declared. It's true. You don't want to believe it? Fine. It doesn't change the fact. The gospel is objective truth. Now, the, it's objective truth, whether we believe it or not. But hearts, hearts that have turned to Jesus, beat with a living faith, a living faith that transforms us from the inside out, that settles us with a confidence that makes no sense to the rest of the world. It's a living faith by which we then may run the race of life through all circumstances. If he saved me from myself, what evil can he outdo, overcome, and use for glorious purposes? That's what follows if you understand what it meant that God saved you in Jesus Christ through faith. If he did that, what can he not do? And right in the middle of Romans in this argument, Romans chapter 8, the end of, uh, end of ch uh, chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 is all I'll read. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he, not with him, also freely give us all things? If he gave you Jesus, what in the world would he withhold? 
If he gave you Jesus, what in the world will he withhold from those who love him and walk by faith? And you are invited to apply that right now to your present circumstances. In fact, you're not just invited, you're commanded. You're commanded to apply that right now in your present circumstances. We are commanded to apply that right now in our present circumstances. How in the world do we apply it? By faith. What do you mean you don't have that faith? What do you mean you don't have that faith? Have you not been, have you not received salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You didn't just assent to it, did you? Because if you just assented to it, well, even, even, even the demons, James said, even the demons believe that Jesus is Lord. Big deal. That's a dead catechism faith. No, I'm talking about a living, heart-beating faith that runs a race because we got up alive. We were dead in our sins. We're alive. We're free. The chains have fallen off, and we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And as we walk, just like all of our brothers and sisters before us, there are rough times. There are uncertain times. There are answers to prayer that never come in this life. Some of us see great miraculous transformations that God gives, and others, like Paul, find out that grace is sufficient. Grace is sufficient in your time of need. I will uphold you as you walk through this trial. In either case, what we find is our ability to rejoice in a God who we trust is working all things for good. That's the faith that Habakkuk's talking about. That's the faith that Paul is talking about. That's the faith that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. That's the faith that is delivered through the preaching of the gospel, a faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The faith that saves is the faith that lives today in whatever trial one finds oneself. The faith that saves is the faith that lives today in whatever trial one finds oneself. You've been brought out of Egypt. You've been brought out of Egypt. Yeah, you say, but look at this sea. And look at this army coming. You've been brought out of Egypt. You've been free. Yeah, yeah, I know I've been free, but do you see Pharaoh and the army? They're coming. You've been brought out of Egypt. What do you want me to do? Trust the old man with the stick? You've been brought out of Egypt. Watch. Watch what I will do. Wait. You're tearing, Lord. You're tearing. I will not tarry. It will come at right at the appointed time. That's what living faith is. That's what living, walking, breathing faith is. It's not a check the box, I believe in Jesus, I get to go to heaven when I die. That's not what it is. It's a living, breathing, trusting faithfulness in Jesus. We are saved by faith and we're not saved by any works. Let's make that absolutely clear. For by grace, Ephesians 2, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. None works, zero, zilch, nada. Nothing, just faith. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. In the very next verse in Ephesians, Paul will say, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by good works, but the faith that saves us is a faith that brings us into good works, to faithful living. So I want to I look at three applications as I close here from these books, from Habakkuk and Romans and Hebrews and this passage in Ephesians that talk about faith, a living faith. What does it mean for us? Remember that you can think of it this way. Faith is a natural response to the faithfulness of God. Faith needs an object. Faith is in Christ. So how does living faith live faithfully? How does living faith live faithfully? Well, the Hebrew word rendered faith in Habakkuk means faithfulness or fidelity. So the just shall live by faithfulness. The just shall live by fidelity. Ooh, that sounds like a lot of work stuff, doesn't it? Well, it's not justification by works, but it is justification by a faith that lives that brings forth good works, that brings forth faithfulness. If you have a living faith, then it is alive. If you have a living faith, then it is alive and it will live today and it will live on Tuesday and it will live next week and so on. It will be responsive to God. Faith is the natural response to the faithfulness of God. So it, this faith will be responsive to God in your day-to-day -day living, not perfectly, and that's, that's part of God's work of sanctification. And when, it, and when it's not perfect, that faith convicts you by the Holy Spirit of your sin. You've fallen down. You confess your sin. You, you call on Jesus. You get up and you keep walking because you're responding to the faithfulness of God who's promised to cleanse you from all sins as you, as you, as you walk with him. So it's not perfectly, but it is genuine. It's living faith. Living faith is obedient faith. This is trust in the faithfulness of God, no matter what our circumstance. You cannot say that you love God. You cannot say that you have faith in the Lord Jesus for your salvation and believe it to be true or anyone else believe you to be true if you are walking unfaithfully and you refuse to walk away from it. You refuse to repent. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I hate his commandments. You can't do that. The, the two do not go together. When you say, I love Jesus and I am saved by faith, then you, if, that, if that's a genuine living faith, then you are going to find yourself all of a sudden hating things you never hated before. All of a sudden loving things you never loved before. And you're going to find yourself growing in it more and more. You're going to, you're going to find a battle between the spirit and the flesh you never experienced before because that spirit was never in you. But now he is and he's attacking. He's attacking that flesh and that flesh is fighting back. And a living faith fights. A living faith fights, pursues and presses on and runs the race of faith. Living faith is, is obedient faith. This is trust in the faithfulness of God no matter what our circumstances. Secondly, living faith yearns and waits faithfully. And in life's circumstances, we walk by faith in God who is, who saves, and who rewards those who diligently seek him. Again, book of Hebrews chapter 11. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Ah, do you believe he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? 
You're standing at the sea's edge. (laughs) The sea won't open. And Pharaoh's coming. Do you believe he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him? God grants that kind of faith. God grants that kind of faith and brings forth those kinds of deliverances. God tells Habakkuk to wait patiently. And he tells God to wait, Habakkuk to wait patiently because the proud and the wicked will die and the righteous will live by faith. And I can't wait to take you to the next part of the chapter because it's not just about your salvation and it's not just about God walking you through your personal life. It is that. It's all of that. But there's more. There's more to come. Oh, we'll wait till next week. Finally, living faith worships with hope before the deliverance comes. In other words, you could say this. Living faith um, looks absolutely ridiculous to the rest of the world, the unbelieving world, because the answer hasn't come. And while the answer hasn't come and they're looking at you going, why are you bouncing around and so happy? I can see this incredible trial that's going on. We can see this incredible trial that we're going through. What are you doing rejoicing? Because living faith worships with hope before the deliverance comes. God is true to his word and will be true to his word. This is where the application really, really hits home in our lives, in our times, and in your situation. You have to take this and apply it in your situation. This faith that God has given you turns your heart towards God, looking to him and not yourself and not your situation. Because you aren't so hot and your situation's pretty grim. But it turns you towards God. Though we aren't there in Habakkuk yet, we will go there and you should go there over and over and over again because this is where it all leads and concludes in Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on high hills. I will run the race. Because God will give me faith to run that race. This is where living faith turns. This is how the just live by faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our gracious and merciful Father, what have you done for us in Jesus Christ? We've been saved from a pit that we could never dig ourselves out of, the pit of eternal judgment of our sins. Grant faith here, Lord, to all who hear your word. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the removal of any fear of judgment. For Christ has come, Christ has conquered, and Christ rules over all heaven and earth. And if he does, then Lord, he rules now in my heart, in my life, in my circumstances, in my land, in my country, in my family. Oh, grant that we might deposit our faith here in the works that you have prepared for us to walk in today. For we will live, we, the just, the righteous, we will live by faith. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond. We'll sing on page 286, and can it be?
Amen. Please be seated. We come now to the Lord's Supper. This is an open table of communion for all who are in Jesus Christ. The outward mark of baptism admits you to this feast. This is not the table of Trinity Church or our denomination. This is the Lord's table, and all who are the Lord's are summoned and welcome. Another way to say this is that this table is for all who have living faith. And living faith is not given only to those who have a particular IQ or at least a certain age or have memorized enough scripture or catechisms. Living faith is a gift. No one earns it. No one merits. It is just given. Your baptism declares it has been given to you. Your baptism declares that you are his. You respond to the declaration now. You agree it is true, and then you partake. To any extent that you're not sure it has been given to you, then as Luther said, say your prayers, man. Believe, or believe again, and come. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. He will take care of the rest. Let's prepare as we come before the table. We'll turn to page 258, sing how sweet and awful is the place.
Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. Let us give thanks together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this bread and for the body of Christ broken for us. Thank you for faith freely given to believe, to partake, to nourish us and grow up into our head, even Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Amen. Having given thanks, Jesus broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. And so please share the bread that you have with your family. To all the children of our guests who are wondering, what was that cry? Because I know you're wondering. Some of you don't know. That was my son, Nathan, up here. He's just delighting in the music. That's how he expresses that. <laughs> don't be afraid. <laughs> We're all used to it. We don't even notice. <laughs> all of a sudden, I thought, ooh, I bet the people are asking some questions. Dad? Dad? <laughs> Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, that evening, Jesus took the cup and gave thanks. Let us do so. Father, thank you for this cup, which is the new covenant in Christ's blood. Let us be mindful this week that you've changed us, that you've transformed us, that you've made us strong in Christ to be his body to the world, that the world might know that Jesus is truly Lord of all. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. He then gave it to his disciples, so please distribute the cup amongst your people. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Brothers and sisters, let us stand and close as we sing the Gloria Patri. And so by that living faith, receive the benediction as you go out into the world this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.